I think about human as a partner of AI models, of AI machines, and not think about that this machine is my enemy and it's going to take my job at some point, then I feel very comfortable around it. When all is said and done, 2023 may be remembered as the year artificial intelligence came of age and started to play a role in our lives every day. I'm Ron Lisnett, and this is the Main Question Podcast. Like the creation of agriculture, the invention of the automobile, or the internet, AI, as it's known, may very well be the next big innovation that changes the world as we know it. Salome Sake, an assistant professor of computer science at UMaine, touched on the fears in that intro that some have around AI and perhaps a better way to view artificial intelligence. The concerns are many. They range from ChatGPT, a technology that can almost instantly write anything in a matter of seconds that could replace human writers or be used to cheat academically. Deep fakes that look like actual people saying things that are totally fabricated. Those are just two examples of the negative effects of AI. There are, of course, many more. The potential benefits are also numerous. Things like robots that can do tasks in dangerous environments, crunching numbers and interpreting data more efficiently, among many others. In this episode, we talk about the benefits and the pitfalls of AI with Sake and Vikas Diman, an assistant professor of electrical and computer engineering. They both have fascinating ongoing research into harnessing the power of artificial intelligence, but we expand the conversation to look at the big picture as we address the question, how will AI impact our lives? I moved here 2019, so this is my fourth year in Maine and University of Maine. What I'm working on, basically, we're trying in our lab to work on AI models design. In general, we're thinking about how exactly we can improve um, AI models or machine learning algorithms from different perspectives. Um, their robustness, their efficiency, their adaptability, and then we explore how exactly we can use these models in real-world problems, including forestry, ocean science, um, and medical science, and so on. Uh, I'm Vikas Dhiman, and I joined University of Maine in, two years back in 2021. Uh, my title is Assistant Professor in Electrical and Computer Engineering Department and I work uh, on the intersection of AI and robotics. Um, so robo robotics is typically associated with mechanical department, uh, building arms and uh, different kind of robots, but we work on the automation side of robots. Uh, how robo what can be done with a robot using a human teleoperator, moving around the robot, and how that can be automated, how can robots make safe decisions while accounting for all the things that are in the room, all the obstacles, not trip on wires, and uh, things like that. Um, so that includes building a uh, model of the room in which the robot is, and then avoiding those obstacles to plan a path and a pro plan a trajectory to a task. So let's let's take a step back because AI has just become such a hot topic and so pervasive in in the news everywhere you turn there's every day there seems to be stories about it. So how pervasive has AI become when planning any research project is this sort of the new reality going forward? 
Well, AI, in my opinion, has a tight connection with data. And the reason that is happening is because we are having a lot of data available and they are access to everyone. And in general, we can say that AI can help us for making decisions. So a lot of real world problems are tied to making decisions, making prediction. And yes, because in depending on which domain we are focusing on, we would have some set of the problems that we need to decide on, some set of the tasks that we need to act on, or some set of the prediction that we need to do. It could be how exactly we can predict about climate change or how exactly we can make a prediction about um, autonomous car to go to the next step. And beyond that, how exactly we can even predict what is the next word someone can say, right? A robot can say it or a machine can say it. Because the data is available everywhere and because this set of the problems are very connected to a lot of real world problems, um, this is, I think, it's the reason that it's around and I think that it will be around and I think that we are on the right track to continue this this form of AI being everywhere, right? Right. A big picture, what would you say about AI and what it can do? What are its strengths and weaknesses generally? Yeah, this is a hard question because we don't totally know the hard boundary between what uh, current AI models can do and cannot. We know broad boundaries uh, which are constantly being pushed. We know that uh, current AI models need a lot of data, a lot of computing power. They consume a lot of energy, and they are able to uh, predict, uh, make predictions based on a lot of data. So if you have a lot of data and then you have some new data coming, then it can put within that data uh, where it is going to be. We also know of mathematical problems like cryptography that, well, n no computers un until like quantum computers can solve it. So the there are categories of problems that we know AI cannot solve. We also know some like limitations of uh, that, like there is a theorem called no free lunch theorem, which says that no, AI model fits perfectly to all data sets. So there is no single solution to all data sets. But that, uh, that is very theoretical. We don't know whether these AI models can do everything that humans can do. Uh, currently they can't, but in the future, whether they cannot or they can, we don't know. I guess it's just human nature that, you know, these uh, stories about AI come up and people all of a sudden think about the worst case scenarios, right? Uh, it's going to, we're going to be living in a Terminator movie or deep fakes are going to make it so you can't trust anything on TV. Um, you had some thoughts and, and maybe if you both would comment, mm -hmm. um, can people, how can people learn to trust this technology and, and, you know, avoid some of these worst case scenarios we see out there? Mm -hmm. Well, trust is a big word, right? Because trust comes after performance, accuracy. Trust comes after obstacles. If if there are challenges and obstacles with the AI models, I would trust it less, right? 
I would panic about it because it's not explainable. I cannot interpret that. So then I don't understand it. It's a black box for me. So I'm not sure if I can trust it, right, as a, someone who is just using AI. On the other hand, you can think about trust as like, do you really trust someone who always forgets? No, right? So it's important to think about if there are obstacles about this form of AI models, uh, we, we still cannot fully trust them from, from that perspective because we see those challenges with them. But on the other hand, having looking at the AI models from like per, partner perspective versus uh, I'm competing with AI models, right? Um, yes, I see a deep fake and I start panic about that and I feel like, okay, is this true? So I, can I like really believe in images that I'm seeing? Versus thinking about, well, this, this deep fake would help me for generating some sort of uh, new images that look like the same as the current one. And those all information could help me to develop a better insights about my world, right? Or if I am in AI manufacturing, and if I think about human as a partner of AI models, of AI machines, and not think about that this machine is my enemy and it's gonna take my job at some point, then I feel very comfortable around it. And instead of uh, being afraid of, oh, it's gonna just, you know, take my job or beat me in some games form, oh, I can use that to help me to overcome challenges in the real world problem and we can work together and be stronger. So I think if we um, spread this form of um, insights and perspective on AI models, I think we start to, to think about uh, the models or in general AI uh, more trustworthiness and also like we think about that as human brain can be improved, AI models can be also more trusted and can be improved. Maybe trust isn't the right word. Uh, you know, is it, um, you know, you, you're, you want to look at it as a tool like anything mm -hmm. else, right? Trust is, has been uh, used for humans and it's, uh, it's maybe not a right word, but uh, you can also call it reliability. Can you, can you consider your hammer to be reliable to do the job or not, right? And I, I think, uh, um, we shouldn't be doomsday, uh, but we should be aware of how things are going and what, uh, how the our tools need to be controlled. And uh, to me, um, deep fakes and the trustworthiness of, uh, say, search engines embedded with ChatGPT is uh, is a bad direction to go because we like when we teach history or journalism. We know how to trust sources, right? We have the concept of primary sources are more trustworthy than secondary sources, and then it's like a game of uh, yeah, whispering in next person here. I forget the name of that game. Uh, so, Chat GPT is trained on the internet and Wikipedia. Wikipedia is actually the third most common domain in ChatGPT's data set. The first two are blogspot.com and wordpress.com. Right. So ChatGPT is like by definition of its sources and it being like another level away from primary sources is more unreliable than blogspot.com and wordpress. 
wordpress.com and so is deep fake so we in this last 10 year period we got into the habit of trusting videos no matter the source before this 10 20 year period that would have been that was not available to us we trusted like authoritative sources like newspaper new york times or uh, people on the ground who are reporting for new york times so i think we need to go back to that uh, conception of trust of information. Where is the information coming from? What is the primary source? What is the secondary source? Now, I want to get into a little bit more about your specific research projects around this, but uh, just one other question about machine learning. Uh, 60 Minutes just had a piece recently about AI, and uh, one of the examples they used was playing chess, and a robot or a machine can play chess 10 million times in a row without getting tired, without you know having to eat or anything, and it's learning at each time it plays, right? Is that what machine learning is, just over and over repetition and correcting mistakes as you go? Is that what machine learning does? So when we talk about AI models, we talk about a set of the different phases, right? A phase which is about the data, a phase which is about tools, structure, algorithm, and a phase that is about computing resources that we use in order to be able to execute those models. So machine learning is a subset of the AI, which is the, the phase two, basically, which is a set of the tools that can come together from mathematics, from optimization, from statistics, from computing all together, and and try to do the learning process. So uh, in this learning phase, which machine learning is in fact about, which is a set of the structure and algorithm there, you need to start from a certain point and let the model to learn step by step the data, right? If you give the data all of a sudden to, to this structure, it's not able to efficiently capture all information in the data, right? Needs to warm up a little bit and still, and we call that as like a training those structures and training those models, right? And this is about machine learning. And machine learning is in fact to capturing information from the data in some sort of either iterative fashion or some sort of one-shot fashion, but also some gradually process to learn those data and come up with a structure that you can rely on that and do prediction and decision making. Um, in chess problems, it's the same as, right? If you play, if you, which I usually mimic that to the human, right? Humans start walking first as a baby and start just learning step by step. It's, it's exactly like how you can understand because, because it's kind of mimic with the human brain. It's not exactly right, human brain. And there are a lot of things that we don't know about human brains, right? It's same as AI models, right? But you feel like that by capturing those information step by step and learning them, uh, you can you can make a better better decision, and this is what machine learning is about. Now you each uh, sort of at this at the outset of our talk talked a little bit about your research and what you're looking at, but maybe you can just sort of put a ribbon on that a little bit. What is the big question you're asking? What's the elevator pitch for for what you're researching right now? I know you each have uh, projects and grants that, that uh, you've, you've been awarded recently. So, Vikas? 
Yeah, so uh, to both of our research and most of research, we have the fundamental scientific question and then the application area. So the application area I already talk about, uh, talked about how to make robots do things automatically, um, maybe pick up clutter from uh, your room, um, and after that, Roomba, Roomba can take over. The fundamental scientific question uh, from the AI perspective that my research asks is, how can you quantify the uncertainty of an AI model and then use that quantify uncertainty uh, to guarantee, provably guarantee safety of a robot's action. So this uh, goes back to um, safety, how do you guarantee safety? And uh, men, uh, in aerospace engineering, there is this concept that each part should have only one in a billionth chance of failure. If you have a part that uh, you have two in a billionth chance of failure, then you have to have two of them. So so that uh, eventually you have one in a billion chance of failure. And how can we uh, uh, do that for AI-based robots? Because AI models are black box, and we don't know how they will behave under different circumstances. So you have to quantify uncertainty. What's the big question for you and, and uh, you know, how your elevator pitch when, <laughs> when somebody asks you, what, what are you researching? Yeah, sure. So uh, when we talk about AI models, one uh, fundamental question is that how exactly this model can react when there is adverse condition? How exactly these models are robust when you have some sort of adverse environment? So we try to improve the current models that they can handle adverse conditions and adverse situations by doing some sort of preparing them uh, and letting them to learn this form of adver adverse examples that there are noises in the in the data there are some sort of uh, different perceptrons in the data and so on on the top of that Another big question that we are trying to address in our research lab is about continual learning. It's about lifelong learning and how exactly the learning can be transferred to the different domain. When I talk about continual learning, I mean we, we are living in a dynamic world, right? We, we keep getting data step by step. And if our model is supposed to learn the old data that it learned in the past, constantly start from scratch, it's not working, right? Because we're gonna run out of storage and also from security perspective sometimes that we don't want to have access to the entire data all the time, right? So we need to uh, develop some models that can learn them once and not forget about them, right? When the next, next set of the data or task coming along. So we are trying to address this type of problem and not only not forget about it, but also be able to transfer this knowledge to the next domain, right? And then we try to uh, explore the applications of what we are seeing. We have data from satellite captures, hyperspectral images, and now the question is that how exactly we can segment these satellite, big satellite images that are captured from, from main forest, for instance, and pixel by pixel be able to um, label them and, and, and be able to do some sort of detection problems here. 
just to name a few. Right. So, you know, as we were preparing to record this, you know, it spoke to you, to you both about some of the areas where AI is, um, I mean, it doesn't seem like there's any research area now, whether it's a hard science or social science, where AI is not going to be involved. But, you know, I just started a list, you know, robotics, self-driving cars, drones. You mentioned lumber and sawmills, forestry, um, 3D printing, satellites, pollution detection. I mean, the list goes on and on, doesn't it? I mean, it, there's no, all of these could be topics where you are applying AI, right? Absolutely, absolutely. I think I think we will have a world that AI is almost everywhere, from your kitchen um, up to manufacture, lumber manufacture, from North Maine, go to the South Florida and completely like different environment, different things. And I think that the whole field is really growing uh, rapidly. And it's important for us to find the right domain to use it um, as any other technology that we have. And in my opinion, this is the era of AI. This is the era of AI of transition from, it's similar as internet era, right? And we passed that phase and now we are in the phase of era of AI. And yes, it will be everywhere and it's a matter of how to use it and how exactly be able to be feel comfortable with it and really like uh, think about it as that, okay, it's like internet, I can use that, I can have a good relationship with it, I can benefit with that and move on. And it just seems like we're on the beginning of this curve, right? I mean, this is going to do nothing but grow. And, and so is it accurate and is it ideal to look at AI as a partner with the human beings that are uh, trying to accomplish this particular task? Is, is that a good way yeah. to look at it? Yeah, I, I think um, uh, if we are doing things right and uh, and we don't make any big mistakes, that is the that is the way we should we should there is very little incentive to build fully autonomous uh, AI which doesn't which has its own motivations rather than motivations uh, uh, to help us right, right? Uh, and partner with us and uh, all these chat GPTs uh, they are not uh, like fully autonomous agents they don't have a will of their own they like they're not we, sentient. They, they are not <laughs> sentient. We, uh, we as humans have a habit of putting uh, a person behind everything. Back in the day, we put a person behind the moon, and I mean, like we thought of moon as a god and sun as a god and uh, uh, as a person, like doing everything behind it. So, so whenever we think uh, see these chatbots, uh, uh, probabilistically replicating blogspot.com, uh, right? they, they are predicting the next word, one word at a time. We have the habit of putting a person behind behind it. Uh, but uh, yeah, they, they are uh, not autonomous and they are there. I mean, the, this is like an autocomplete and you should think of it as autocomplete rather than a person behind it. Yeah. How much AI research is going on here at the University of Maine uh, in and in the classrooms? Is this starting to be part of what is talked about in lectures and, and certainly research, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, AI initiative was something that actually became a big deal a few years ago. And uh, we we started in general at UMaine to focus more on not only research perspective, that how exactly we can use and uh, support um, AI labs or support other labs to be able to you know, use 
um, AI in their own research um, problems, but also for the teaching part, like for the first time machine learning class that I'm teaching, that was the first time proposing at UMaine. There are other courses, um, I'm sure Rikas can talk about robotic-based courses or neural network-based courses. We used to have deep learning-based course that ECE department used to offer that. And, and, and I think what we have right now, in my opinion, is not sufficient, but I think we are trying to propose and like offer more and more um, courses in AI and ML. I think we can do better in general, but I think it's a, it's a strong start. There's going to be winners and losers in as there is in every situation, right? So, I mean, some some of the the fears that I've heard out there is like writers now feel like I'm going to be out of a job. If you look at it the right way, I mean, in a lot of ways, it's going to help other people and certain people do their job better and be more effective. So, it like like anything, there's it's a double-edged sword, right? Autocomplete is already there in coding editors. So probably we are going to need uh, fewer programmers. And uh, uh, I mean, I, I don't think the the recent firings, like 12,000 people were laid off in Google and 10,000 and Amazon. So recent state of tech company hirings are uh, lay, laying offs are because of that. Uh, but uh, yeah, as the productivity of writers and programmers, I, I'm, I don't see uh, AI replacing programmers, replacing pro- programmers as in the sense of re- removing their need, but improving the productivity of one programmer and one writer that can write maybe 10 articles and 10, uh, 10 websites in the same period of time. So the demand of uh, these skills might decrease, but uh, still, uh, AI is at a stage where you need some editor to fact check it, to look at, over it, and a uh, computer programmer to make sure that everything works as, as it should. We also need programmers to program these AIs and like fine tune these models for these tasks. So uh, yeah, so there will be some shuffling, but it's hard to predict the future. So it's it's a daunting but exciting time, certainly for you in the f- working in the field. It has to be just fascinating every day seeing what, what is changing. So just sort of the bottom line, last question is, what's next? What, what do you see happening realistically five, ten years down the road? Is this just going to keep growing exponentially? If you could tell us what surprises are coming, you would be a, you would be a very rich person right now. But, <laughs> but just, I mean, what, what do you think is going to happen with all this? Well, I think innovation matters now a lot, right? Not that it wasn't a big deal before. Um, The beauty of AI partially is because you don't know what's coming next, you know? I think that is, that that excites a lot of people to wait to see because you don't you cannot predict what exactly happening is it going to be exactly what we saw in fiction movies or it's not going to be like that if you look at spacex um um airplanes or a force right missiles and all those things it doesn't look like exactly the past the ones that we have been using to do the space travels and so on. It looks more like technology-based. If you look at inside of it, it's you can say that it some looks like a fiction, so you know, but it's not like that. So it's a little bit like a gamble here to think about what is going to happen. However, 
I am very optimistic in general. I think um, what is happening is requires some infrastructures. I had a question from a teacher asking me, what do you think about ChatGPT or how do you feel about it? Do we need all to be concerned about it? And I'm like, no, you, we just need to a little bit change the structure of how we were teaching right up to now because the resources are different as we did for, for the era of internet, right? When the internet came, we were like, there are a lot of open resources what we should do, right? Um, so in general, I think a lot of exciting is coming up. I think automation becomes a big deal. We will see some, this is my personal opinion, we will see some changes in job structure. Not, we, will, we might even be able to not completely remove some of the jobs, but you know, try to downsize some of the job titles and then also increase the others one because this is just the nature of how the this whole era is gonna work. But it doesn't mean that uh, we are getting rid of everything completely from the past and make like, comp it's, it's just a transition, right? A graduate transition for the future. So yes, we will see changes in job market. We will see changes in lifestyle even driving, right? Look, things are, EVs are becoming more a big deal and the, the rules needs to be adapted to, to the new, right? As we do in classes for teaching now, it's the era of chat GPT and how exactly I can teach my students to be able to take advantage of both ChatGPT and the classroom and things like that. But I think the world is going to be more exciting than what we see now. And um, it's just very nice to be able to see this transition be in this era. We'll give you the final word. What, what's, what's next? What do, you, what do you think you'll see? Uh, yeah, so I think uh, in the era, in autocomplete, chat GPT is going to revolutionize Grammarly. Now you have a very, uh, I mean, uh, easy way of drafting a basic draft and then working over it. Uh, same for coding and uh, programming. Yeah, there is, uh, there is a possibility that we have like a new programming language that is more similar to English and Maybe we are teaching uh, uh, students that programming language instead of actual programming languages. So anything where, say, one thousand, there is a one thousandth of a probability that uh, that thing is not seen in the data set before, like edge cases, what we call the edge cases, uh, and those edge cases can ruin things. Uh, I don't see AI impacting that those areas very much. So like autonomous driving, chat GPT is not going to scale up the pace of autonomous driving. So it will still take like 10, 15 more years for autonomous cars to show up on the road because the edge cases have to be solved before we, we uh, see them on the road. Uh, yeah, so that's what I think yeah. mostly that's going. Well, fascinating stuff, appreciate you taking the time yeah. to chat thank you, to chat thank you so us. much it was a pleasure to talk to you thanks for listening you can find all eight seasons of the main question wherever you get your podcasts apple and google spotify stitcher and soundcloud umaine's website as well as amazon and audible questions or comments send them along to mainquestion at maine.edu this is ryan Lisnet. we'll catch you next time on the main question